Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast series. My name is Steve Lewis. I am the Assistant Director of Global Strategic Alliances for CSAIL at MIT. In this podcast series, I will interview principal researchers at CSAIL to discover what they're working on and how it will impact society. I'm here today with Professor Samat Amara Singh. Professor Amara Singh leads the Commit Compiler Research Group at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. This research group focuses on programming languages and compilers that maximize application performance on modern computing platforms. He is the world leader in the field of high-performance domain-specific languages for targeted application domains such as image processing, stream computations, and graph analytics. He also pioneered the application of machine learning for compiler optimizations. Professor Mara Singh's entrepreneurial activities include founding the company Determina Inc., which was acquired by VMware in 2007. He also co-founded Lanka Internet Services Limited, the first internet service provider in Sri Lanka. Professor Mara Singh is a faculty director of MIT's Global Startups Lab, whose summer programs in 17 countries have helped to create more than 20 thriving startups. Professor Mara Singh received a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and computer science from Cornell University in 1988, a master's degree and PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford University in 1990 and 1997 respectively, and he joined the MIT faculty as assistant professor in 1997 and was elected as an ACM fellow in 2019. Professor, thank you for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. Can you just describe in layman's terms, uh, just in case anybody out there doesn't know what a compiler does or its purpose? So most of the tools, especially compilers, what they do is it is the way that a programmer can instruct a computer what to do. The same way you can use a natural language like English to explain to a student what they should be doing in their problem set. How do you tell a computer what to do? use a programming language. Unlike English, they are a lot more precise. There's not much ambiguity in a programming language. And what a compiler do it, it takes the, this high level description of a program and map it in a way that it can be run on that computer. So it brings that program from a high level programming language to assembly language. That's what the compiler do in a nutshell. I see. So, you know, compilers have been around for a long time. Why is there a need for another compiler, a better compiler? So let me explain. When I started doing compilers in late 80s, my good friends were working on natural language processing. So if you look at something like natural language processing uh, about 30 years ago and compilers 30 years ago, they had very similar structure. So what you do is you take this high level program and you do bunch of analysis of that program and keep transforming it slowly from one level to another and slowly lower it to the assembly language in compilers or in natural language processing, do slowly lower it to a point you can understand the program. However, what has happened in last 30 years is a natural language pipeline has no similarity to what was done 30 years ago. Right now, it's completely done using machine learning. So the pipeline has completely changed. However, the compilers, the today's compilers still look very similar to a compiler 30 years ago. So one thing I am pushing hard these days is how can we bring compilers up to date with modern systems like 
machine learning and modern solvers, modern algorithms, how can you make it a lot more efficient, a lot more reliable, a lot faster? So that is a big push that I am doing in my research group. I see. And does every computer language need a separate compiler? Is there not one universal compiler? Is that what you're driving toward? or? So we are actually moving away from providing a one universal compiler. In fact, even a one universal language. So the issue is if you try to build something so common, it's not going to be that efficient or that fast. This is what domain, if you last 30, 40 years, we have tried to use a single language to roll everything. But what we are finding is if we go to a domain, whether it be physics, whether it be image processing, whether it go natural language processing, or whether it's go machine learning, if you create something that is focused on that domain, you can get much better performance. But also it makes it easier for those domain experts to explain their program in that domain. Because you that that language in that domain will be much closer to what they how they think about their problem. Whereas if you have to map it into C or Java or some common language, you have to do a lot more changes to your thinking before you are able to write it in that in that programming language. So we are not only trying to provide better performance, but we are also trying to provide better productivity for these domain experts. How would you describe your research vision and some of the bold aspirations of your work? So there are a few things driving my research vision. One is we are at the end of Moore's law. Moore's law had unprecedented impact for the entire industry, in fact, entire world. And now we are very used to every two years getting twice the amount of compute power. However, that's not happening anymore. So if you want to keep our momentum going in computing, we had to do something different. So I am approaching this from the angle of programming languages and compilers. So one idea that we are really pursuing hard is there are many domains of computation like image processing, image compression, signal processing, machine learning, computation biology. These are the emerging domains that is going to take a huge amount of compute power when you go to the future. Can we do something that is very specific for these domains that will make it able for them to get much better utilization of current machines so they, we can write Moore's law curve a little bit longer? So I am looking into new programming languages domain, in different domains and how to get really good performance for engineers in this domain. In many of these domains, what you find is there are researchers who want to do research in that domain from image processing to uh, uh, quantum chronodynamics, but they have such heavy computation requirements. They are spending so much of their time not doing research, but writing and optimizing code to get the performance they want. I see. And I want to make it much easier for them. So instead of their spending 80% of their time writing code, I want them to spend 80% of their time thinking and doing the research and use domain-specific compilers and high-performance compilers there so they will get the performance they need to do the experiments. Why are you teaching performance engineering? So when I was in college, every undergraduate had to learn at a level that they cared about performance. 
because those days machines were not that fast so if you want to get good performance you have to care about it one repercussion of uh, long run of the moore's law is people got little bit lazy or distracted about performance and so if you look at a undergraduate coming out of any major university today there will be great programmers but lot of them don't understand how their program is going to get executed and what kind of performance you get out of that program so they are writing their programs in a very high level abstraction and what that means is they are leaving lot of performance in the ground so in this class we are starting with showing the matrix multiply how would you write matrix multiply with in python and what we are showing at the end is what you write in python the simple matrix multiply versus the best you could get today in a machine could be about 100000 times slower the python code think about it wow if you have a car that is 100000 times worse in miles per gallon that will be almost a criminal offense to have a car like that okay the, the the comparison we make is if you can take a super tanker and make its energy consumption at the level of a scooter that is 100000 and that is the kind of performance we are leaving on the floor today because we got so used to moore's law just giving us free performance so if anything is free you get little bit lazy and carried away and you get into gluttony so what we have done is now we have to train people to go back and think about performance understand that what they just normally write might not be that performant and how to understand how to get better performance and go about that so it is a kind of a mindset that if you go through that even if you are writing a normal piece of code not something high performance you think a little bit performance wise you won't do the crazy things that that might be a little bit simpler but you know will be too slow so we are pushing people in that direction and i think it's lot of times it's eye opening for some lot of students to see how much performance they are leaving behind by just using the normal tools that they have, they have been taught like the high level languages like python and stuff like that i see um so i mentioned in our intro that you pioneered the application of machine learning for compiler optimizations why are you using machine learning to optimize compilers so if you look at a compiler what does compilers do so it takes a high level programming language and map it into low level assembly code but about 80% of the compiler also about 80% of the compiler code that if you look at a compiler is a search problem so what happens is you have this high level programming language there are billions and billions of ways to generate different assembly sequences to make that program work and the compiler's task is to find the assembly sequence that will probably be the fastest way to run that piece of code and that's basically a search problem and so how did this search problem was done before till now the state of the art is to write bunch of heuristics so some engineer sits down and say for this piece of code if you do this 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 is the best assembly code i can get so these things get written into the compiler compiler is full of heuristics the problem is some of these heuristics are 20 years old so there are certain things in the compilers if you look at it you realize this was probably the best thing to do when the intel had pentium 
but they are very bad today because compilers are too big. It's very hard to keep updating these heuristics every time a new machine comes out. This is really sad because companies like Intel spend billions of dollars creating this new microprocess with a lot of new capabilities. And the compilers are still not taking advantage of their old school. They are sitting in this very old uh, uh, transformations written uh, 20 years ago. So they're not using multi-threaded, multi-core, any parallels? Like for, for example, uh, Intel, every generation, introduced this uh, SIMD instructions. MMX, SSE, AVX, AVX 5 now uh, uh, basically machine learning instructions, all these things. That's about 3,000 odd instructions. If you look at something like LLVM compiler, it will only generate about 1,000 of them. The last 2,000 that they introduced has never been even automatically generated by the compiler. So Intel spent billions of dollars adding these instructions. Perhaps few people hand assemble some critical kernels, use them, but that's it. The compiler can't do that. However, if you can build a compiler that can learn how to optimize, how to generate code, we have shown that it's possible for the compiler to learn to generate these pieces of code. So what it does is so we can keep up to date with all these changes happening in architecture, all these changes happening in the languages by learning to do that. So you can be a lot more responsive to changes by building a compiler using machine learning than a compiler that has a lot of human written heuristics. So how do you train that machine learning model actually it's very interesting to train machine learning models you have a lot you need a lot of data correct one thing we have in programming is a lot of programming data you go to github you can get millions and millions of lines of code and also generated assembly there's millions and millions of lines of generated assembly and to even figure out if they're good or bad you just have to run it that's machine, you can, it's easy to run things in there and evaluate. So the kind of the data side is not that difficult. Uh, it's still, there's a lot of work required to basically collect these things, put it into evaluatable uh, uh, benchmark suites and run through that. Mm -hmm. But it's not like you have to need, you need humans to hand generate or hand annotate. There's a lot of good data out there that you can use to train a compiler. I see, interesting. Can you talk about uh, your work with the Global Startup Labs? You were the faculty director. Can you tell me about the lab and sort of its mission? So Global Startup Lab got started about 20 years ago. It has this very interesting model. What, a, what we do is every summer, we take two computer science students, two business students, probably Sloan students or some other business students, and send them to a country, mostly a developing country, and they spend about eight weeks in a university or some organization with about 20 to 40 local students or uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, training them how to become an entrepreneur, how to start a company, especially a technical company. This is not about just producing some slides about doing a company. They will actually think about a product idea. And we are doing computer science because most of these products are information technology products. So they will also build a prototype. We will show them how to build a prototype. And they will also create a business model around it and do presentations and, and see how they can launch a company. So last few years, even in the remote corners of the world, People knew what entrepreneurship was. I mean, they have seen enough news, there's enough internet that people understand entrepreneurship now. So now it's becoming 
something we go tell them something they won't know they won't understand however when we started people did not want entrepreneurship course in fact when we went first time to sri lanka it was advertised as there's bunch of people from mit is coming to teach you how to do programming the entrepreneurship side was not even in the advertisement and and lot of students were really upset that they are told this thing about how to sell products and stuff like that they did not get it but at the end of that session bunch of people took it to the heart and saying look instead of going to go get a salary job we can actually start creating jobs so i will tell you a couple of startups there's this company that came out of that program called foaxis solutions it's a company out of sri lanka started by four undergraduates who had never left sri lanka they were all local students who have only grown up locally now there is this company that is producing a drawing app on the apple marketplace that has ranked higher than the adobe and microsoft apps they have multiple million downloads it's in about 200 uh, different uh, geographic regions in there they're, they're selling this app and they are making multi i think few million dollars revenue at this point and a country like sri lanka it's a huge amount they are, uh, they have uh, basically employing about 40 people and this is because they when they join this program they have no intention of going to go start a company but they caught that bug of entrepreneurship they realized this is something they can do it's possible and they took it to the heart and they waited till graduated and started this company we have many stories like that across the globe from africa asia latin america these students go and inspire this young brilliant Uh, students mainly computer science students because that's what we are targeting and also in these countries very hard to raise money and and information technology startups are things that they can do with very little capital so because of that that's why we are focusing on that so it's it's a very inspiring thing and i i think the students at mit they get lot out of it too because lot of times when they land in a country they suddenly become the experts in the area in fact i have seen the prime ministers of a country talking to our freshmen and 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 uh, junior graduate students asking them how they should uh, encourage entrepreneurship in that country in fact i was i was part of this meeting where if you look at mit we do lot of teaching that are basically very interactive participatory ways of teaching many countries has this one directional teaching in there and then actually this happened in sri lanka couple of university professors came to just see this class and they were very impressed the way that that interactive teaching is working they invited these students to go give a talk to the entire faculty of that university on how to give a good lecture and imagine a freshman of mit who was instructor telling bunch of faculty who are probably 50 60 70 year old how to teach and and actually she did amazing job Uh, giving example of couple of freshman classes and how this uh, like interactive teaching methodology work why it was really good and you had the rapt audience of these old faculty listening to uh, these students so they get this amazing experience too and and it has worked very well for both the mit students who go as instructors and also the local participants who come attend these classes that that's wonderful so you're going to these Uh, developing countries you're inspiring students you're teaching them not only on the technical basis but also sort of the business uh, side of things about how to start a company just giving them 
the idea is to think bigger, right? Many countries have very hierarchical kind of social structure. So it's very hard for a 19-year-old to think that they can be the boss. And to tell them, give them that confidence in this arena, age doesn't matter. Fact that a lot of these people in uh, that come to these schools might come from poor backgrounds. The the fact that you and your parents are not millionaires doesn't matter. Uh, that if you have a good idea and if you put a lot of hard work, you can make it work and show them the examples can be very inspiring. And a lot of people take it to heart and fair amount of has been successful. Are you providing any funding for them or? We are not providing funding. What we will do is when a group of MIT people go to a country, it's easy to open doors. So our students will basically have sessions with the students in some time, either one student or after the sessions, they will walk into all the top corporations of that country, government offices, and basically we will create ecosystem. We will basically invite a lot of like uh, uh, people, rich uh, individuals in the country, uh, uh, top uh, business leaders to basically uh, to our classes, to talk to our students, show what they're doing. And many times one when we leave, they have found uh, uh, sponsors to their work because normally these people might not go and see this, but because there's MIT is involved, they are excited to see what MIT is doing in their country. And I that see. helps us a lot. So, so that you opens the door and we will basically highlight these students to the leaders of this country, uh, both uh, industry leaders and sometimes political leaders. And, and that has helped the students to basically take it, their project to the next level after we leave. I see. I'm interested to know sort of, you know, your opinion on, you know, how, how would this, what does the future look like? What, what should these students be looking at as far as coding? So, one thing very interesting these days is building application and infrastructure is very easy. There's a lot of frameworks, languages, a lot of them are available for free. There's uh, uh, web services, things like AWS or local counterparts for that. So what we are showing them is unlike good old days where I took a lot of resources, money, talent needed to get a product out especially information technology product out. There's a lot of resources available today to do something easy and cheap. And, and, and showing them paths, showing them uh, uh, how to do some of these things, guide them through, giving them examples, actually inspires them. So good old days, when we started uh, 10, 15 years ago, most of the demonstrations they can do after eight weeks are very minimal. A lot of them were just like simple prototypes, simple website, stuff like that. Today, in eight weeks, people can build fairly sophisticated applications because they're using a lot of frameworks. And what happens in a lot of these countries, these kind of practical things are not taught in universities. There are a lot more book learning of theoretical material. So one thing our students try to do is go teach them about this practical available resources that they can use to build applications and build the uh, uh, things that they are, they, they want to uh, prioritize. I see. Sort of what inspires you in this field? Obviously working with these young entrepreneurs is, is a source of inspiration, especially when they have success. Can you tell us about what else inspires you in the field and some of the projects that you're working on? So if, 
somebody told me that i had the entire hindsight when i was a graduate student or even undergrad to enter into a field that will become the center of what activity that happen in these days in computer science i mean they would think i was very smart i i, I feel i'm very lucky that i made some random decisions 30 years ago that made me put uh, made me here first of all computer science is amazing field things that we did, do today was never even done 10 years or never even imagined 10 years ago it's about imagining the future and not just imagining the future we don't write science fiction novels we make this happen and being in that being in the center of that is really 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 exciting that's the first thing in there second being at csail it's a, it's an amazing place csail is kind of center of activity it's a beehive of activity everybody is thinking about some crazy idea you bump into your colleague and and somebody is basically doing uh, using machine learning to figure out the next generation molecule or uh, 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 um, creating this algorithm that you can see through walls or see through uh, 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 obstacles there's so many things that that is even beyond science fiction that i wouldn't be even thinking that science fiction writers would have that much imagination that's happening around you so that's it's really inspiring in there other thing that's very inspiring is the students we have we have some of the most brilliant minds who come to mit i mean every year we only able to take about 1% of the people who want to come here and 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 we are lucky to have some amazing students and working with them is really great so seeing some of these students who came as junior students i had one of my students who graduated and became a professor at mit and another student who became a professor at stanford and and the third student is going to uiuc seeing that these students who started as graduate students are now becoming the next generation leaders training the next generation computer scientists able to help them achieve that is a really exciting proposition that's what make me want to wake up every morning and these days i don't come to office i come in front of my zoom camera and 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 talk to everybody is <laughs> that's what motivates me excellent can you expound on some of your collaboration with industry for example you mentioned toyota was that use case for autonomous vehicles computer vision path planning algorithms so csl alliance has been really useful because my research i want my research to be useful for people there's lot of people who do research because there's some beauty on what they are doing or they are just pushing a boundary i want to actually do things that will be useful what csl alliance has provided me is people who has the need so there are many times like for example we have been working with uh, one of the alliance member toyota for a while and we had this project called ako which is a tensor algebra compiler so as good tensor algebra com- uh, researchers we build something that works in c++ language and say we we are done it and then when we talk to toyota they says if we had this working in python my researchers would be much e- uh, like to adapt this thing and that feedback we got from the csl C- alliance because they can figure out because they have the people who have the need who are using cutting in technology who has the need and then when you talk to them you realize 
small things you can do to what your research that can have a big impact in real life because they give you real life feedback. So I have used that multiple times when I have some new ideas and a new, new thing coming out of research. I love to go and tell the C-Cell Alliance members, here's what we are doing. And many times they will come and say, this is very similar to one of our needs, but, but our need might be a little bit different. And that can actually guide the research and inspire the next things we can do. And that has been very useful in, in uh, getting out of C-Cell Alliance members. And that's, that's a really fun thing to be part of C-Cell Alliance. Excellent. And so some of the use cases perhaps that um, you've collaborated, use cases that you've collaborated with industry on with when, when you mentioned Toyota, is that for autonom um, autonomous vehicles? Is that for computer vision? Is that for path planning? What, so what the Toyota project was lot of experimentation around uh, computer vision requires computing on sparse tensors. So we are working at a low level infrastructure. So there are researchers at Toyota who's playing with algorithms and they need to easy way to implement this algorithm, send their data to see what happened. So we are building the system and they said, look, if you do these certain few things, it will be very useful for our researchers. So that's what we did. And another project that I am working with, uh, one of, another one of my colleagues, Kalyan Veeramantranini, uh, is we are looking at synthetic data. So there are many companies in C-Cell Alliance that also has problems with basically uh, privacy of data and data security. And we have got a lot of interesting feedback from them and say, look, if we have synthetic data in certain ways, certain forms, it will really solve some of our immediate needs. So that part is help us because in fact, I am working with him to basically create this new startup company that to prioritize some of it because the feedback we got, we got a lot of strong feedback that says there might be a use for a synthetic data for these organizations. So that inspired us to basically go try to prioritize this technology. Fantastic. That's great. Okay. Well, that's all the time that we have today. Uh, I'd like to thank Saman for joining us um, and have a great day. Thank you for having me in this show. If you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.